0: Welcome back, I'm Jared Johnson, ready to share some more provocative thinking about the healthcare of tomorrow. Here's what's gonna go down today. We have the flavor of the week about Apple possibly offering health insurance. What can a consumer-first insurance plan look like? And is Apple the right player to offer it? I'll talk about that. Then Sarah Benite and Matt Dixon from Stericycle are in the house to discuss their newest patient engagement research, hot off the press. They just released research about consumers' preferences for engaging with providers, and some of the answers might surprise you. Spoiler alert, the phone is not dead after all. It's time to dive right in. Are you ready? Let's go. Flavor of the week. Could Apple be looking to take a bite out of the health insurance market? Sorry, sometimes the headlines and dad jokes practically write themselves. In this case, the headline refers to reports that Ben Wood, chief analyst at CCS Insight, believes that Apple will take its tentative first steps into the US health insurance market in 2024 in partnership with a major insurer. They would be using data from the Apple Watch that they're already collecting to give themselves a competitive edge over rivals. Stephen Megling, ambassador for digital marketing firm Haley Sue, posted his take on LinkedIn. He said, would you buy health insurance from Apple? I would. Apple is a consumer-focused company i okay. Sorry, insurance companies, but most of your decisions benefit stakeholders, not consumers. Apple innovates. We're heading off a healthcare cliff of epic proportions. We need innovators and disruptors. Apple uses data to divine breakthroughs. Sorry again, insurance companies. How exactly are you using consumer data to make the cost of care more affordable, more accessible, and more proactive? Christophe Chauquet is an international keynote speaker on health business and host of the Healththusiasm podcast here on the Shift Forward Health channel. He posted a reaction video on YouTube saying that he believes the move could be a very good thing. What will insurance companies do with all the data, he asked? Will they be excluding people? Will they be asking for higher premiums? I really don't think so. I actually think that the fact that an insurance company can have more data will allow them to create better products for you, probably at a lower cost. It could actually bring back the social aspect of insurance back into insurance again. Here's my take. First, Apple has the consumer-first DNA to create a better version of health insurance. No one likes dealing with insurance, no one. So imagine if Apple can do what Apple does best, meet our expressed and unexpressed needs. We didn't know we needed iPhones until there were iPhones. They provided something that we didn't know we couldn't live without. I'm bullish about what they could do for something that no one wants to deal with. Second, partnerships, there it is again. Their move is expected to be in partnership with a major payer. They don't need to start from scratch. Partnership is part of the disruption formula. Third, and this is a big one, we need to stop underestimating big brands that are entering the space. We need to stop minimizing the effects that they have on the conversation with consumers. Listen, Apple doesn't need US news badges. They have the highest market cap in the world. Tech and consumer brands will continue to enter healthcare whenever and however they want. We keep thinking that disruptors will go away, but they just keep coming back in other ways. The latest example is Walmart Health. People have been dogging them for years, but they just announced 16 new clinics that they'll be opening in Florida in 2023. How many health systems are opening 16 new locations next year? I'm not sure how many more times it needs to happen for hospital administrators to take them seriously. Whenever anyone builds a better healthcare experience for consumers, I will stand and cheer for them. If it's Apple, great. If it's a health system, awesome. This one's a long way off and no one knows how successful it will ultimately be, but their very presence changes the conversation. It's time to imagine what a consumer-first insurance plan could look like and how it could provide a better experience for everyone. That's another way that we'll build the healthcare of tomorrow. And that's the flavor of the Week. Everyone, let's get into the flow. Uh, very excited for today's episode. We actually have two guests, and that means double trouble or double the insights and awesomeness. Maybe a little bit of both. We'll find out. We've got Matt Dixon and Sarah Bennight from Stericycle. Matt is the Senior Vice President of Product Strategy and the GM of Communication Solutions. And Sarah's Director of Marketing at Stericycle. Matt and Sarah, welcome to the Healthcare Wrap.
1: Well, thank you for having us.
2: Yeah, thanks, Jared. Excited to be here.
0: You guys have some really interesting research that whenever we talk about consumers, whenever we talk about like what is being disrupted in healthcare, it all comes back to somebody being serviced by a healthcare professional and the ways and the preferences that are out there are shifting. Needless to say, we're going to dive into what that means, but... Let me back up a little bit. Let me give you each a chance to fill in the gap in your bio and tell us anything you want our listeners to know about. Matt, why don't we start with you?
1: Sure. As you noted, Senior Vice President of Product Strategy, also the General Manager of Communication Solutions within Stericycle. So many people wouldn't know this, but there's a little division inside of Stericycle that is focused on patient engagement. So I've been here a little over three years. Before that, I I hopefully, thankfully, we're not doing this live. Nobody can boo me or throw tomatoes at me. I worked on the other side. I Work for, with uh, insurance plans and payers, working with some data analytics, segregation, coordination of benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So I've got a lot of history happened into healthcare right out of college and have uh, stayed the course just recently made the switch over to the provider side of the business.
0: Outstanding. Sarah, what about yourself?
2: Sure, Jared. I've been at Sarah Cycle Communications Solutions for six years in various marketing roles. And and now, like you mentioned, a director of marketing for a team that's really responsible for all areas of the marketing funnel, you know, PR product, all the way down to just executing on lead generation and Salesforce administration and automation. I've been in healthcare for 13 years now and really focused on the back end of the EHR for half of my career. So Meditech and the next gen EHRs in a product role and then moved into product marketing. And then I came over to Stericycle from a, a, a mutual friend we have in the HITMIC community who, who invited me to join the stereocycle team in marketing um, and just really loved moving to more of a patient-facing technology role. I think it's much more exciting. There's much more at risk than, than the back end of the EHR and, and working on integrations. Um, but also, you know, being a mom of three just knowing how hard that is to coordinate and schedule appointments and and get questions when you have, you know, you're we burning questions in the middle of the night on what's going on with your kid. I find it very important to, to just me and, and other consumers. What we do is so critical to healthcare and being able to engage with the healthcare system.
0: Oh, it's so true. And both of you, I mean, just being able to point to different perspectives of the healthcare industry, the experience, what that means, the business side, but also the personal side. Being able to project our own personal lives into the types of experiences, the types of, of tools that are being used to build that, that type of experience, that's something we can always do more of. It's, a, it's great to even uh, have that as our starting point here. So let's dive in a little bit. I'm curious when you already mentioned, Matt, this term patient engagement. I wonder if you can just give us a general state of the state of patient engagement today. It can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. We already mentioned a few different types of stakeholders, but in general, if we focus like on the provider side, for instance, what are healthcare organizations, what are provider type of organizations doing well and where do they still face challenges? Let's start with you, Matt, and then, and then Sarah.
1: Sure, so I think the things that are doing well is what I would call tactical engagement, right? These are things like my appointment reminders, prep instructions, don't forget to upload an insurance card or bring your insurance card with you. Let's collect your medical history. I'd say they also do pretty well at population-type communication. So this would be things like it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, don't forget to get a mammogram, or we, we see the same thing with colonoscopies. All in all, I'd say they're doing a pretty good job of that. Where I think they have a ways to go, and we have some data to support this that we'll get into later, is I think they're not doing a great job around care compliance and their communication around that. Certainly, I think they're not doing a great job with very targeted Communication, I think we need to get to where n equals one and really looking at all the data points that can inform communication for an individual and not just a population. Because ultimately the goal of engagement is activation. And I believe to make that transition or that step between engagement and activation, it takes a much more targeted communication and, a, and a communication is, that, is much more informed by data points outside of things like channel of choice or blanket type communication.
0: Excellent. Sarah, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I think the evolution of, of what I've seen in healthcare, I think what they're doing really well is now you can tell health systems, especially marketers, care about patient engagement. You can tell that patient is a central focus and, and what does the patient need? You see this because they're bringing on consumer experience officers They're bringing in patient engagement specialists. But one of the bigger challenges is they've got all these tools and technologies and solutions out there, but now there's workforce constraints. There's there are budget constraints. So I think there's a big desire, which is exciting to see because five to six years ago when we were at Hims, no one was talking about patient engagement at HIMs. They were really just talking about the cool technology that's on the periphery of of healthcare, not really at the center of what the patient needs to do today to make healthcare decisions. I think the big challenges and small things like picking up the phone when a patient's calling in, you know, the amount of time that the patient has to wait to get served or the amount of appointments that are available online because of these workforce challenges. And I think we're going to struggle a little bit with that until they figure out workforce and budget and, you know, get back to business where they can bring up these patient engagement strategies that they want to implement, but they can't do it quite yet because they're not fully staffed.
0: Oh, that's a really good point. We can talk all we want about it, but yeah, if Staffing remains an issue. We're not going to get to the place where where we want to. And that is really important to set the stage for the research that Stericycle recently conducted. There are a lot of different points that that you guys talked about and re, and did some survey research on, but a lot of them, a lot of those data points focused on consumers' preferences for the way that they engage healthcare providers. So this is this is a report from Stericycle. And I wonder if we can just start with the basics of that, like the methodology, you know, how was the research conducted and how many respondents and that, that kind of thing. Sarah, do you want to take us through that?
2: Sure. So this this will be our third annual survey that we've launched. We started in 2020, which was really interesting because we were in the middle of this pandemic and no one was really sure what was going on or how the, how the healthcare system was going to be able to evolve to, to meet the needs at the time. But now it's really exciting because we can see data over time. And trends over time, the questions that we've asked the last three years. This year we've partnered with Ipsos to conduct the survey and we, we pulled 1004 adults ages 18 and older from the continental US, Alaska and Hawaii. And the survey was conducted online, and the cool thing that we did this year, and I'd love, I'd love to get more into this next year as we start being able to use the the proper technology and, and solutions to do this. But we conducted the survey online in English and Spanish, and and ten percent of those respondents were able to answer the survey in Spanish, which is really important because we heard a lot of data during the pandemic as people were transitioning to telehealth that it really wasn't serving. Everyone, because non native English speakers were not able to access and and manage the platforms because they're all really built in English. Online scheduling is no different, Um, it's it's typically built in in English, and um, that's how the patient navigates it. So, we really wanted to tap in and find out what are some of those activation and access barriers that you're having. So, really excited to have um, some of the respondents answer in Spanish, and we actually saw some of that in the data that multi language is a barrier to online scheduling. So the source of these population targets is based on the U.S. Census of 2019 American Community Survey data. And we answered from all demographics, gender, age, race, ethnicity, region, and education.
0: That says a lot in and of itself because what we are talking about with a healthcare experience is something different for every single individual. And the awakening, if you will, of the industry to recognizing the all the factors that impact that experience for any one individual i think this supports that that thought of like we're going through something right now as an industry we're going through an awakening we are understanding much better the reasons that are causing to somebody either to either see the doctor or not to either skip that appointment or, or not, or not even scheduled in the first place. So I know there were there were quite a few key takeaways here. Y'all want to walk us through some of those either key points or topics. Some of them may have been more surprising than others, but where do you guys want to start with those?
1: Yeah, I'll start with a couple things that I think we found really interesting because there were some marked changes this year. So again, as Sarah noted, third year, Channel of Choice changed dramatically this year. So, that's one of the things we asked, right? What channels of communication from your primary care physician do you prefer? And in 20 and 21, there wasn't much movement in those. So, email was, you know, 37 to 33%. Phone was 30 to 29 when we're talking about 20, 20 versus 21. Text message was 28 to 27%. This year, markedly different, so if we were to look at, for example, phone call, so historically that's been around around 30% as the channel of choice. This year it went all the way up to 49%. When we looked at the impact or people were saying they want to engage via text message, uh, historically that was 28 and 27%. Now that's down to 13%. So the theory that I have there is that more and more people are gravitating to the least noisy channel. So what have we seen happen as consumers, right? Historically, email was terrible. We used to get all kinds of spam email. Then spam filters came out. And now my inbox is relatively clean. Now we've seen that shift to text messages, though. I don't know about you, Jared, and and Sarah and I have talked about this. I I mean, I get 10, 15 spam text messages a day. Some of them are the the more sophisticated phishing type spam where somebody starts out, Hi, how are you? You know what I mean? Or donate to this political cause, right? Or whatever the case may be. So I think what we're seeing is the phone is kind of this last bastion of almost clean communication because of some of the actions the FCC has taken around, shaken and stirred protocols to kill some of those robocalls. We're seeing carriers do a much better job at killing those robocalls. And I'd say part of it is people just want that return to a human touch. I mean this pandemic has been tough on everybody and I think you'll see this too as we talk about uh, people returning to in-person visits as part of our survey results as well. Strong preference for people getting back into office and seeing telehealth usage uh, decline precipitously as well. So I think that's one thing that this year, huge, huge change to channel of choice. The other thing that I think our survey talked about that's very informative though And again, a lot of our focus here at Communication Solutions is bridging the difference between engagement and activation, right? We need to take people from interest to intent to action. So the other thing we ask is, well, what got you to do something, right? It's great for you to tell us how you want to be communicated with, but what was the actual channel that got you to take an action? And again, there's been a lot of change over to what we've seen historically with, again, the number one channel for activation is the phone. So 62% of respondents said if they missed an appointment, what prompted them to reschedule was a phone call. Last year, that number was only 48%. So we're seeing a little bit more alignment around channel of choice and channel of activation, but there is still some disconnect there. And certainly, I think the one that say is most surprising, maybe not to us because of what we do, and part of what we do is run contact center solutions as well. But really, for years I've heard in healthcare and all of consumerism, the phone is dead. I would say at least for healthcare, and particularly in 2022, that is a far cry from the truth.
0: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of when Slack first really started getting big, I heard email was dead. So, you know, yeah. everything everything's dead, apparently, and then it just keeps coming back. But you know, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point in and of itself because part of me wonders, you know, from a from an experience standpoint, I know when I've tried to schedule something uh, digitally, the options aren't necessarily that clear. When it asks, like, what type of appointment do you want or what type of provider do you want to see? And I'm like, I don't know, I kind of want to ask somebody before I... Check that box, and I wonder if part of that reason to speak with a human is because I have more questions that aren't clear when I'm trying to do it, you know, digitally. And so that's where one place where my mind went to. But I, I think you're right; like just this need for human connection is part of everything we do now.
2: Yeah, well, and healthcare is deeply personal. It's one thing that I feel will never completely remove a human from the experience, uh, no matter how far we go into technology. But one thing in noting that was with online scheduling. And one of the things I saw as a key takeaway was online scheduling is definitely desired. They want their providers to have it. And, and we're seeing that in class recently released a patient preferences report. And they're saying the same thing. They want to use online scheduling, but usability is not great. It's confusing. It's a, it's a hard experience. I don't know what I'm doing when I click these buttons. The available appointment selection is not great. So when you're talking to a human, you can say, "Look, I, I'm really having challenges right now. You know, I I'm an asthmatic, for example. I'm really having a hard time. My albuterol is not working. I really need to get in sooner." And you can, you know, state the urgency there and and try to get them to do something about it. On online scheduling, you're with the appointments that you're given. And then we, like I said in the in the intro and, and the methodology, we saw that multi language access. of of patients said that that's a barrier to me using online scheduling.
0: Yeah, we don't want to neglect that. In fact, we want to really move that up the priority list of multilingual, multi-language for sure. Stay tuned for more provocative thinking after the break.
3: One of the must-attend healthcare conferences this year is the annual Healthcare Internet Conference. HCIC will be held on November 7th to the 9th in sunny Miami, Florida. This dynamic conference provides a great opportunity for healthcare professionals to learn, share, network, laugh, and collaborate. Here are just some of the great new options that HCIC has in store for you this year. There are recorded bonus sessions available to watch anytime during or after the conference, recorded vendor demos discussing hot topics or showcasing the vendor products or services. There will also be a career fair section that is available to search and browse for open digital healthcare positions. It's really an uplifting way for you and your team to recharge and refocus. Go to hcic.net to learn more and get registered today. That's hcic.net. We can't wait to see you there.
0: Okay, back to the flow. What were some of the other key takeaways from the research?
1: I was surprised by the strong preference for in-person care and the precipitous decline in telehealth. One of the questions we asked was, for your most recent primary care visit, did you conduct that in person or via a virtual offering or telehealth offering? And I would say most patients now probably have both options available to them, right? So I think this really speaks to preference. 93% of them said their most recent primary care visit was in person. So I think, again, we're finding people are craving that human touch, that human interaction. I think that when given a choice right now, I think they prefer to conduct these appointments in person. And kind of a follow-up point to that that I think solidifies that is we asked what percentage of our respondents had used any kind of telehealth one or more times in the last year. And in 2020, that was 71% of our respondents. In 2021, that was 78% of our respondents. In 2022, that number went down to 45%. So I think the aggressiveness of the regression of telehealth, I think, is very telling right now in the industry. I think patients are doing a better job of figuring out what kind of appointments make sense via telehealth. And I think that's what's driving some of this is they're finding that many of the ways they were forced to use telehealth during the pandemic were not effective methods of receiving care. And now they're figuring out and settling in on the types of appointment that are effective to deliver via telehealth.
2: I think a a couple of the the trends that I saw out of the report that are are maybe a little more on the concerning side is that while most people are are engaging for healthcare again, delayed care is still a challenge, uh, specifically with the younger age group. And when we ask them, why did you not or why did you delay care cost? I I didn't want to add medical costs to, to the bills I'm already paying was one of the biggest reasons for delaying care where in 2020, the biggest reason for not attending an appointment was I didn't feel safe. Now that's gone down to like the number three reason that's a challenge. Um, you know, Delayed care is a problem and continues to be a problem. We're seeing research, a lot of research that Matt has done, in fact, on you know cancer diagnoses being found later at later stages because of missed screenings and missed opportunities to, to find it earlier. The other concerning trend we're seeing is in patient follow-up. In ER visits, 91% of patients who received care in the ER needed some type of follow-up care, However, 34% of those patients did not receive a referral and 33% of ER patients did not receive any follow-up communication after a visit. That is an alarming statistic to me because how do you reduce... ER admission rates? Or how do you keep people healthy when they're presenting in your ER if there is no follow-up communication? Like, um, are you doing okay? How is your pain level? Are you taking your medication? Do you need to come back in and see us? 33%, that's a third of these patients had no follow-up communication from the healthcare system.
0: There's a lot to be said for that. I mean, when I look at it from the experience, like the lens of the consumer who's coming in, and depending on you know their state of mind we all know people aren't out there shopping for a healthcare encounter on any given day of the week so we're already in a not our best state of mind more often than not you know when we're when we're scheduling an appointment there's something wrong we're not feeling well so to say that that care didn't get to the point where it needed to be clinically and there's a lot to be said for that And engagement and activation. When we talk about these things that need to happen, they are often, from my standpoint at least, there are lots of little steps. It's not like one, it's not like an EHR that you turn on and all of a sudden you've digitized some processes and there's some benefits potentially. We could go off an entire different episode on that. But You know, there's not like one solution that you just plug in and you're like, cool, this is all solved. We've figured out everything with engagement and activation. It's typically a lot of different types of of encounters, communications that you're having to set up and coordinate and update. So this is an iterative process. And I I just feel like, like if I put myself in this in the in the shoes of a leader at a hospital or health system, someone who's tasked with patient engagement, and I read this research. How would I use this research in my work? Like, how can I use this to advance some of the initiatives to improve our engagement? What are your thoughts on that, Matt? Like, how can I use this research to kind of help improve the engagement at my healthcare organization?
1: Well, the first thing is you got to start measuring activation. Right? You can't just measure engagement. You've got to measure activation. So I think understanding that is critical or important to inform your decision making process. And I think that's what this research is telling us, right? Is we probably have all have a pretty clear understanding of self reported preference for patients and how they want to be communicated with, but it is very misaligned from the reality of getting people to take an action. The other thing I would say there, Sarah talked quite a bit about delayed care and the impacts of that. You know, there is some other data that supports that. One of the reasons, there's a couple of reasons people are still sitting on the sidelines. For younger folks, it's they're concerned about how much it's going to cost. For other older folks, it's typically safety is one of their primary concerns and why they're sitting on the sidelines. You know, we talk a lot about within communication for us, we, we always talk about what we call the four Cs. There's really only four things that you can change, right? The context in which you send a message, which is largely timing, the content of the message sent, the channel in which it was sent, and the cadence in which you send that communication. What we've started to think about is how do you use those four C's to create the fifth C, which is confidence, So I think health system leaders really have to think about how they're commuting in a way that creates confidence in the patient to not only know the next step they need to take, but to feel confident about doing so, right? Whether that be, hey, don't worry if you've got cost concerns. We have programs that can address that. Don't worry if you're concerned about your safety. Here's what we're doing to ensure you're safe throughout your entire engagement, These are the things where, uh, again, I think health systems, and that's why we talked earlier about very personalized communication. I believe to create confidence, communication has to be much more personalized than it is today. The other thing I would say there is we are quickly seeing that convenience is king. And particularly with younger folks, and our our survey bears some of this data out, you know, when we asked people, why did you see healthcare in a retail location, right? A non-traditional health system. And 61% said convenience of location was the top reason they made that choice. And we asked them what would the top factor in where they were choosing to go for non-urgent care. And 58% said location or convenience was the top factor. So what we're seeing more and more is, I think, as health system leaders even have to think about their physical footprint in that strategy. At least when I was a young man, not so young anymore, the trend was, we're going to build the most sparkly new campus. And everybody's going to come to us, and this is where you're going to get care, right? It's going to be the greatest thing on the face of the earth. What we're seeing, though, is consumers are telling us they don't care about your campus. They'd much rather have a micro location or a micro center two blocks from them, right? Because the reality is, most of us, the way we engage with healthcare is very episodic in nature, right? It's, I've got an ear infection, I've got a sinus infection. You know, you don't need that deep, deep level of specialization. So, especially with young folks in particular, convenience is definitely king. And I think health systems need to start to think about, even from a physical footprint perspective, how they make those choices to create a more convenient experience for consumers. Because this is what the CVS of the world are doing, the Walmarts of the world, the Walgreens of the world. They are trying to create incidental, accidental, however you want to think about it. I was here to get some milk and boy, I got to tell you, my ear's been bugging me for two weeks. Right here, boom, I can pop into a clinic and and get some treatment, right? They really got to start to think about how they put healthcare kind of in the way of your day-to-day living, because that's exactly what some of these non-traditional players are trying to accomplish.
2: Adam Charrington recently spoke at our client symposium in San Diego, and he presented us with an interesting slide that showed, here's what patients want, And here's what health system leaders are working on, the programs that they're doing, or here's where they're doing really good jobs. And the, the disparate data points were really interesting from my point of view to see that what we're working on and what we're focusing on isn't necessarily making patient engagement easier or making it easier to activate a patient. So if I were a patient engagement leader and I read this research or any research, I would encourage them to read other research insights to help them devise their strategy. But I would map where I'm focusing resources versus where patients are still having pain points. And there are a lot of pain points you will see in, when you read this with this consumer survey and try to better align the strategy with what patients actually need, especially with a smaller workforce, with staffing constraints, really trying to put attention on those areas where there are huge patient gaps, like patient follow-up That is not only going to dictate patient outcomes, but it also is maybe potentially another source of revenue. If you keep referrals in your system, you keep a healthier patient who's now getting care and taking care of what needed to be taken care of. You also have someone that's still engaging within your health system. Maybe they need a specialist that can't be serviced by non-traditional healthcare. Okay, great. Now you have a patient hopefully if you treat them well and you get them through this you continue to keep them activated hopefully they'll become a loyal patient and a long-term patient maybe bring other people from their family into your health system so it's it kind of feels weird to talk about revenue when it's about patients and outcomes but but it's really necessary to grow your health system, to grow your patient revenue, and to grow your programs that you do want to go after and chase. Find those areas where patients are having gaps now and create loyal patients who will evangelize for your health system.
0: What type of progress? I just like looking to the future a little bit. I'd like to say like a 24 months. Let's just say that. What kind of progress do you hope that we can see in that time when it comes to patient engagement in the industry?
2: Well, personally, I would love to do away with my eight patient portals and all the apps on my phone that I'm trying to figure out how to log into and which one, you know, which username is it? Is it my youngest kid? Is it me personally? But, you know, if you look at patient engagement and where we've come, I think we were really disrupted in during COVID, but I think we really need to look at what worked and what didn't work and Infuse that into patient engagement. And then the next 24 months, I hope we filled a lot of those gaps, whether they're resource gaps, maybe we can automate something, you know, in patient follow up. Patient scheduling is a must now. It should be enterprise patient scheduling. They should have one experience when a patient interacts with your brand. They should have a similar experience at every venue they go to in that brand. It's your brand promise. It's your brand story. And, you know, healthcare systems have stood behind their brands for a long time. Well, now it's time to really live that and own it. So I'd love to see that in the next 24 months. I'd love to have all of my providers using some type of online scheduling system. And like I said, filling up the gaps and making sure patients have the opportunity to have a better outcome.
0: Awesome. Would love that too. Would love that for sure. Uh, Matt, what do you think?
1: I hope that evidence-based communication is talked about as often as evidence-based care. I think this is the biggest problem in healthcare communication today is, again, we are not measuring the right thing. We are not informing our strategy with enough data points. We are not taking a holistic approach. And let me give you just an example of what I mean by that to to draw a fine point to it. We do uh, health and wellness campaigns. We do a ton of these. And Every year, during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, our clients come to us and say, can you send out a bunch of emails, text messages about scheduling a mammogram? We see the same thing with colonoscopies, we see the same thing with Heart Healthy Month, right? We, we see these trends. But the question they never ask themselves is, do I have any appointment availability right now to service those people? So what happens? You're creating a more frustrating experience through your communication because you're not taking a holistic approach, right? You're driving people to action to go book an appointment, and they're getting more and more frustrated because they're like, what do you mean? I can't find anything. There's nothing convenient for me right now. So those are the things I'd like to really see change is often communication in health systems today is too siloed. Often it's only using very simplistic methodologies around determining when that communication should go out what channel it should be in You know, the number one predictor of missed appointments due to a a huge study that the UK conducted is the number and severity of mental health conditions you have. I will bet money there's not a health system in this country that considers that in their communication methodology. Like maybe I should pick up the phone and call this person, even though what they're being seen for isn't a mental health condition. But we know that people with mental health issues are more likely to not be involved in their own personal or self care. And maybe picking up the phone to call, that person makes the most sense, even though it's more of a routine physical, right? And that—that's what I'm talking about—a more holistic, data-driven approach that really looks across uh, data points across the entire health system to create evidence-based communication and outcome-based communication.
0: It's outstanding! What a great place for us to kind of wrap up the conversation, uh, especially giving us so much thought. Like that's—that's that's something I've never considered to be a factor there in in your communication and and whether you show up to an appointment or not. It's fantastic. Uh, Matt and Sarah, it's been such a pleasure. I'm guessing there'll be a place once the survey is is live for people to access it, download it. So we'll we'll include a link in the show notes when that's available. In the meantime, just want to wish you both the best. uh, And thanks again for your time today. Stay safe, stay well. And uh, thanks for giving us so much to think about. Yeah,
1: great. Thank you for having us on.
2: Uh, Thanks, Jared.
0: Thanks again.